Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for uh, joining me today. I hope you were just with Susie Larson and you stuck around and you're, now you're here. I would love for you to uh, be with me the whole two hours. But if you can't, you can always go to the podcast because that's available uh, just minutes after the show concludes today. And I've got a guest in studio, so I want to get right to him. He is a, an amazing gifted speaker and communicator and author. He's written a book called Hope You're Curious, Real Answers to Honest Questions. His name is Kyle Davison Bear. We probably remember him from last December. We had him on for several uh, Mondays in a row with the Monday Afternoon Mix, talking about his Christmas book, and now he's back. Hello, Kyle. Hello. So I love the book. I love the format, and I think it's one of those books that you can pick up for five minutes and put back down and pick it up again for another five minutes. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really easy to get into. Yeah, no kidding. So because we're going to answer um, some honest questions, let me uh, get some out of the book as a sample. Like, for example, question 11, why did Jesus' Jesus's message endure after his death? Doesn't Jesus' death prove he's a failed Messiah? Great question. Well, I, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I got it out of your book, by the yes. way. Uh, although I should say, yeah, the questions in the book don't come from me. Um, all the questions in the book uh, came from from real people online. Um, just to give you a very quick background on this, uh, for about the past ten years or so, I just I love hard questions, and the harder question, the better. And especially if it's a question that you've been struggling with, or that you're almost uh, too afraid or too ashamed to speak of. Like those are the questions I love. Bring cool. bring me those. And so, um, all of these questions come from people like that who they. They've been wondering these things. They've been they've heard them from somewhere. Or they don't know the answer to them. Or uh, so the book has forty eight of these questions. Uh, this particular one you just asked about. Let me ask it again. Okay. Why did Jesus's message endure after his death? Doesn't Jesus's death prove he's a failed Messiah? Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that question a number of times in a number of ways, and it often comes across um, yeah, from people who look at. What Jesus did, like they they see his life, of course, in the lives he touched, but then he dies, and then, like, if Jesus is Messiah, why is that? Why would he die? You know that that was not the expectation of the Jewish world up until that time. And so, mm-hmm. if you just look honestly at what people were writing and asking, anticipating, Jesus doesn't meet that, so it doesn't mean that Jesus failed. Um, and I love to get into the depths of this question because the Book of Daniel just. Uh, he gives you a, a roadmap for the life of Messiah. And, but before Daniel came, people could have anticipated that Messiah would just arrive and rule forever. The prophecies up until Daniel's point just give you a very broad, um, you, could, you could just expect Messiah would never die. But after Daniel comes and you read his prophecy and you see what God says, it, just, it becomes inevitable that Jesus had to die. So the short answer to this question, why did Jesus' message endure after his death? Doesn't, doesn't his death mean he failed? Well, no, because of what Daniel said, because of the prophecy God gave Daniel, Jesus' death was the only way that he could succeed. And it all comes from Daniel 9. 
in Daniel 9, you have kind of this roadmap of who Messiah will be. And it says in Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks are determined concerning your people in your holy city. And then here you have the job description of Messiah to put an end to rebellion, to bring sin to completion, to atone for iniquity, to bring in perpetual righteousness, to seal up the prophetic vision and to anoint a most holy place. That's what Messiah needs to do. Then the very next verse says, uh, tells you when Messiah is going to appear. And this is, uh, if you remember back to our last conversation about Christmas, I mentioned a prophecy from Daniel about the arrival of Jesus and why people were so excited and why they were ready to receive a Messiah at the time. And this verse tells you why. It says, So know and understand, from the issuing of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince arrives, there will be a period of seven weeks and 62 weeks. Then Jerusalem again will be built with plaza and moat, but in distressing times. And if you missed that, I read it fast. That gives you a precise clock from the issuing of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Until Messiah comes, there is a period of seven weeks and 62 weeks. And of course, those are weeks of years, groups mm-hmm. of seven years. The command to rebuild Jerusalem came from Artaxerxes on March 5th, 444 BC. So that's when the clock starts ticking. And then you're, uh, the Jewish world, you know, they have a lunar calendar. They don't have a 365 and a quarter day calendar like, you know, uh, we do in the secular American world. They have, you know, 360 day years because it's on the cycle of the moon. Uh, you count, you know, those number of weeks of years of 360 day years, it counts you down precisely um, to March 29th, 33 AD. And if you've read your Bible, you know that day. That's the triumphal entry. That's the day Jesus marched into Jerusalem. So it, it kind of answers the question, why did Jerusalem explode in welcome on that day? Jesus came to Jerusalem so many times before. Why was there no celebration? There was celebration on March 29th, 33 AD, because of that clock. People knew that is the day Daniel was counting down to. That's the day Jesus entered Jerusalem and said, I am Messiah, I am here, I am taking my seat at the temple to rule. But the next verse says, After the 62 weeks, after that clock completes, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And as for the city and the sanctuary, the people of the coming prince will destroy them. And so Daniel gives you these amazing details. It counts right down to the day of Jesus' triumphal entry. But then five days later, Messiah is cut off. He is killed on the cross. And 40 years later, Jerusalem is destroyed. The sanctuary and the city just like the prophecy said. And so you remember the job description of Messiah. It had seven things in there. One of them is to atone for iniquity. That's probably the one Christians are most familiar with, what Messiah does, why Jesus goes to the cross. And he has to because of what Leviticus 17 says. It is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Leviticus 17.11. It's kind of the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Jesus had to die to fulfill Messiah's mission. But Messiah's mission isn't done. He still has to put an end to rebellion because there's still rebellion out there. He has to bring sin to completion. People are still sinning. That's not done yet. He has to anoint a most holy place, Jerusalem, the temple. The temple isn't existing yet. Since it was destroyed, it hasn't come back. So Daniel's prophecy, when you put all the pieces in place, it tells you Jesus had to come. He had to die to complete that part of the mission. But there's still things he hasn't done yet, which means he has to be alive again. He has to come back. He has to return to finish his work. So when people point to Jesus' death and say, doesn't that mean he failed as Messiah? 
I go right back to Daniel 9 and say, no, 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 that's exactly what Jesus needed to do as Messiah. He had to die. If you have a Messiah who doesn't die, you have a Messiah who is not atoning for iniquity, who is not able to remove sin, and that's no Messiah at all. Interesting response. Thank you for that. Kyle Davison Bear is my guest. He spells his last name B-A-I-R, although it sounds like the animal, Bear. It's, It's like the air you breathe with a B in front of it. Like the see, that's even a better illustration than I was using. So there you go. You must have more practice than me. A lifetime of it. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Let's uh, continue. <laughs> His book is called "Hope You're Curious: Real Answers to Honest Questions." There's another question, uh, Kyle. Why and how should I read the Bible? Oh, I love this one. Um, one of the things about asking questions online anonymously, like suppose you're a 65 year old retiree. You've never quite figured out how to read the Bible, and you're ashamed to ask your pastor because you've been sitting under his sermons for three decades. Like, where do you go to actually ask your question? It's too late to ask the question. Yeah, exactly. So you go to Guy Talk on Thursdays, or now we ask you, Kyle Davison Bear. Both are great places to go. Amen. Uh, so I love this question, um, why and how should I read the Bible? And when someone asks that, I, I got to break it down. Why should you read the Bible? Because it will improve your life in nearly every major area. How should you read your Bible? As though your life depended on it. And then how can it change your life? This is the part of the answer I just love to get into. There's the researchers at the Center for for Bible Engagement. They did a study on people reading the Bible. Uh, They didn't really, this was kind of an accidental discovery in that research, but it's just amazing. They looked at people who read the Bible. And, you know, I tell people, read the Bible like your life depends on it. When they found people who do that, who read the Bible at least four days out of the week, so more days than not, you're reading the Bible, really trying to get something out of it. For people who did that, their feelings of loneliness dropped 30%. Anger issues dropped 32%. Bitterness in relationships, whether it's marriage or children or whatever, dropped 40%. Alcoholism dropped 57%. Feeling spiritually stagnant dropped 60%. Viewing pornography dropped 62%. Gambling dropped 64%. Sharing the gospel with other people increased 200%, and discipling others increased 230%. Mm. And all those things happened. It's amazing. Yeah, quite. And that all happened. The only correlation they could find was these people are reading their Bibles more days than not. Mm -hmm. It didn't correlate to church attendance. It didn't correlate to like whether they were trying to do these things. No, just the people who were honestly reading the Bible most days of the week and really reading it to get something out of it. All of these things happened just because they were in the scriptures. And so, how should you read the Bible? Why should you read your Bible? Because it really will improve nearly every area of your life. I mean, loneliness, anger, alcoholism, sharing the gospel, discipling others, pouring into others' lives. You know, and that feeling spiritually stagnant. As a pastor, you know, I often talk to people who, who are like, you know, I just feel like my spiritual life is going nowhere. You're like, so I ask, How often are you in the Bible? How often are you reading the Word? Well, you know, maybe I might open it once or twice a week. You know, it's an afterthought. It is. Yeah. But you'd look at somebody whose spiritual life is thriving, who just loves the presence of God. I guarantee you, they're in the the Bible every day. Mm -hmm. And so for someone who feels spiritually stagnant, I just tell them, man, open your Bible. Read it. Just really try to get something out of it. Read that book like your life depends on it, and you will find your life improving. Yeah, Kyle, what about, op- of course, opening it to, s- to seek for truth, to come to saving faith in Christ? Amen. I mean, I know that's part of 
what a Christian goes to the Bible for. But yes. I think some of these additional things you added in make for a, a wonderful um, confirmation of all the incredible benefits that come from being saturated in God's Word. Amen. Yeah. I mean, when I say read it like your life depends on it, it does, both your life now and your life to come. Yeah, of course. It, and like you said, reading these things, it just, it, it proves, if reading this book improves your life that much just by reading it, I mean, this isn't even people trying to obey it. Just by reading the book, mm-hmm. they, they received all these benefits. So if, you, if you're reading it and you're trying to live it out and you're following Jesus and you're bowing at his knee and you're doing everything he says, I mean, this is your clue. This is how you live. This is your key to unlocking the life you've yeah. always wanted to live. Yeah. I mean, if an atheist lived by biblical principles, they would have a wonderful life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. So, yeah. We'll take a break. We'll come back more with Kyle Davison Bear. His book is Hope You're Curious. Real answers to honest questions. We're not really taking questions because we're going to work out of some questions that are in the book that he's already addressed. So, uh, again, hope you're curious. Real answers to honest questions. Be right back. If you'd like to know more, about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. I hope you are having a great day. And we're so glad to be having Kyle Davison Bear back in the studio. He's written a book called Hope You're Curious, Real Answers to Honest Questions. Let's get back into some questions, Kyle. Mm-hmm. Here's one. Why do I think thoughts I'm opposed to thinking? Could the devil be speaking deceptive messages to me? <laughs> yeah. That's one of those questions that uh, oftentimes people are afraid to ask their pastor because you're afraid of the look you'll get right after the question finishes, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, but it's a very honest question, and I, I just love it because this person was, I mean, imagine the place this person is in thinking, you know, like, is the devil just constantly, you know, making me think things I don't want to think, you know, and trying to control my life? You know, this person is wondering not just for their mental sanity, but for the, the sake of their life. And so I love that question. My first answer to this person um, in the book, I talk about Paul. You know, Paul is one of the giants of the faith, and yet he confesses, I don't understand what I'm doing. I do what I do not want to do. Instead, I do what I hate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is a man, Paul was wrestling not just with thoughts, but even with actions, doing what he didn't want to do. So my first answer to someone like this is, if you're thinking thoughts you don't want to be thinking, and you feel like you can't even control your thought life, first, you're in good company. Don't feel like you're a less than Christian. Like If, if Paul struggled with this, it's okay that you struggle with this. But then the second thing I do, I take him to Philippians 4.8, which it's a verse we often hear in church, but there is so much wisdom packed into this verse where he says, you know, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellent thing, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And that's not just Paul saying, you know, have nice thoughts. He's saying, like, if you want to get serious about your mental health, and the thoughts that are running through your mind each day, focus on these things. You know, it's almost like your thoughts are a bookcase, 
and there's limited space on that bookcase. You can only fit so many books on there, so pick them carefully. You only have a limited amount of space in your head. There's a limited number of thoughts you can think every day. So stuff your brain with good thoughts, with the things you actually want to be thinking, and just let it push the other stuff away, you know. Fill that bookcase with the things you want to be thinking about. Um, I had a colleague at church who was um, really tried to do this, deal, to deal with his own stress. He just found that he was stressed out constantly, whether it was work or job or politics or whatever. So he really took this verse to heart and like shut off the news. You know, not that it's wrong to be informed, but he just realized the news was one of his most significant causes of stress. So he just cut out that, you know, even cut out going to Twitter. You know, he just, he kind of went after it militantly. Like everything that was feeding my stress instead of my peace, he just cut it out. Mm-hmm. And he focused on the word. He focused on prayer. He focused on being with his family. He did it for about three weeks and he said it was just amazing. He didn't even realize how stressed out he was until all those sources got cut off. And when he was just feeding his mind with things that actually were true and honorable and just and pure and lovely, the peace he felt like he he couldn't remember feeling that for years. And all he had to do was cut out all those things that were feeding the stress and the negativity. I mean, our culture is so loud and there are so many voices trying to make you scared of everything possible. And that's just wearing down the mental health of so many people. So if you're thinking thoughts you don't want to be thinking, if you're thinking stressful thoughts, yeah, maybe it's from the devil, but maybe it's from the news. You know, whatever the case, whether it's from the devil or whether it's from Twitter or whether it's from, you know, a news anchor, whatever the source, it doesn't matter. Cut it out, fill your mind with what is good, and you'll be amazed at how much peace comes back into your life and quickly too. This is not years for my friend. This was days. Wow. Significant difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, Kyle, let's talk about Esther. Why is Esther in the Bible? And uh, doesn't even mention God. Yeah. How'd that work out? That is one of the weird things. You start reading Esther and looking for God, and yeah, God, God isn't a character in the book. Yeah, but he's all over Esther. <laughs> he is. Yeah. yeah but don't give it away the answer, though. Oh, all right. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> you go ahead and answer it. No, no, it's, it's your show. You say what you want. No, but... no, no, no. You go ahead. You're my guest. Yeah, no, I love Esther. Like, Esther and Daniel are written about the same time. Daniel is just chock full of God and prophecies and angels, and Esther has none of it. And I think the point is that, you know, God can work in both ways. You know, in Daniel, God works very overtly. You have miracles, you have prophecies, you have visions. In Esther, God works through, you know, quote, ordinary circumstances. A person just happens to be in this position to hear this thing. You know, the king just happens to have this record read to him at night when he can't sleep, you know. Mm -hmm. Esther just happens to be in the right place to intercede for her people. All these things that just happen to happen in the perfect way, the only way that could happen so that God's people are saved. So you see the invisible hand of God's providence working and arranging everything to bring about the outcome he wants, even if he's not specifically, you know, showing up to people and, you know, giving them visions. He's still very much at work in that book. And it's an encouragement, I think, to people. Like Everybody wants the flashy Daniel miracle vision prophecy kind of life. Um, and of course we don't want to degrade that it's in Daniel, it's in the scriptures, but if you're just living a, you know, quote, normal Christian life and you feel like, you know, God isn't doing any of that flashy stuff, God can still be so very much at work in your life, just as he was in the lives of Esther and of Mordecai and everyone in that book. I mean, the hand of God orchestrating events is just undeniable when you see the story laid out. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing if you were to sit down and tell someone the story of your life and how these things happened and you saw it in the way that Esther lays out that story, you would see the hand of God working in your life as well. Mm-hmm. And it's a great reminder that God works 
in our lives in non-obvious ways. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we would like really obvious ways to go, oh, there, there he is, God answering my prayer in obvious ways. And God does a lot of work in non-obvious ways. We just need to continue to trust in him. We do. Yeah. All right, Kyle, probably time for one more. What is the origin of the idea of a loving God? Where'd that come from? You're not <laughs> going to find any other religion talking about a loving God. Yeah, that is a great question. And it's, it's kind of surprising if you just grow up in church and it's kind of all you know, you think, well, of course, God's a loving God. Why wouldn't he be? But then you start reading around to some other religions and some, some of the other worldviews, and you do not find a loving God like we find in Scripture. I mean, I think it's especially potent when you look at the other creation stories around the world. I mean, you'll have gods who are just fashioning people out of clay and like some are finely crafted and some are just flung out and, and become commoners and nobody really cares about them. And I wouldn't say that's very much the act of a loving God, you know. And sometimes you have, you know, gods fighting against each other and one's corpse becomes the earth and, you know, parts of it, you know, decay and become people. Like, again, that's not the creation of a loving creator. Mm-hmm. Um, but only in the scriptures do you find God personally, intricately, passionately creating humanity as his children, the children he loves from the first page of the book. From the first page of Genesis, you get this impression that God loves us, that he loves humanity. He's crafted us as his children. He wants to be in our lives just as a loving parent wants to be in the lives of their children. And it's one of the incredible gifts that Christianity has given to the world, even just the idea that God could know us and love us and want to have a relationship with us. Again, if you've grown up in church, it just sounds normal. If you have not grown up in the church and you don't know the Bible and you come across it for the first time, it's just a revelation that God could want to know me and love me. Who is this God? Mm-hmm. Probably one more question, Kyle. What is the hardest thing to believe in the Bible? <laughs> Good follow-up question to what we just talked about. It is. What would you say? Oh, the hardest thing for me to believe in the Bible I mean, it's the most beautiful thing, but it's also the hardest, that God loves me, Mm. that God knows my entire life, all the mistakes I've made, everything I've messed up in, the things I've done, the things I should have done that I didn't do, that God knows every single detail of my life, and he loves me more than I will ever be able to appreciate or understand in this life. Mm -hmm. That is the hardest thing for me to understand. Like, I could understand if God hated me. I have given him plenty (laughs) of reasons to hate me. Mm-hmm. But for God to say that I love you so much, I will gladly give up my life to make sure that you can be with me forever. That is mind-blowing. Is me. It is. Yeah. It is. And it on is. that note, I think uh, we will wrap up our time together. But Kyle, uh, thank you for coming back. And there's still a lot of things to mine in this book. We'll probably have to do part two. Uh, Happy to book, do it. The book is called Hope You're Curious, Real Answers to Honest Questions. So we're going to uh, take a break. And then when we come back, we're going to continue doing some uh, study of God's Word with my friend, Dr. Greg Heddington. And if you are going to consider going to the Set Apart Conference, I hope you do. Uh, Rosie, you know a lot about that. Um, I do. It's uh, March 3rd and 4th, and it's a time that you can grow closer to God. Nicole C. Mullen's going to be there, and Lori Short, Keith Stevens from KTIS, just a lot of workshops. It's a great time to enrich your life with the Lord. And you can register today at setapartconference.com. That's setapartconference.com. So we'll take a break. And when you get your Bibles open to First uh, John chapter 4, get a notebook and a pen because Greg loves to give you notes with Roman numerals. So we'll be right back.
studying the Bible with my friends, and today is no exception because Dr. Greg Heddington is going to be joining the program. Once again, we're going to be talking today about 1 John. One of my favorite verses in that chapter 4 and is verse 7 that says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And I'm glad to have Greg on the show, and I love my friend Greg. Greg, welcome. Bill, great to be here. Great to be anywhere, but especially here. <laughs> exactly. So we are studying with Dr. Greg Heddington from the book of First John. Yeah, well, welcome to our seventh lesson on some of the New Testament epistles. This lesson is, as Bill said, on First John 4, and it's in this chapter, the author does emphasize the love of God for us and we are, how we are to love God and others. I'm going to do a little twist on it, because today I want to talk about what believers in Jesus must do if they are to continue growing in our love for the Lord and for others, and that is I'm going to be emphasizing reading God's Word. And it is spiritual warfare that challenges us to not study God's Word. So if you're taking notes, Roman number one, Scripture and Spiritual Warfare. The messages we receive throughout the day are often anything but truth and are influenced by a world system controlled by the prince of the power of the air, also known as Satan, according to Scripture. Speaking of Satan, let's let's talk about evil. You know, it's interesting when I talk to little children and ask them what evil looks like. Most of the time they say evil looks like scary movies they've watched. One of Satan's strategies, I'm convinced, is that after people watch those movies and shiver a little bit, then they think to themselves, well, I'm glad that's just a movie, that's not real, so now I can get back to reality. Although evil does not look like the evil creatures or scary people in movies, Scripture does tell us that reality consists of daily warfare in the invisible realm, not against monsters and and wicked-looking people, but, well, Let me read about this from the Apostle Paul, what he says in Ephesians 6, verse 12, about the daily reality for every one of us on this earth. And these words are probably familiar to us, but let me read them. After all, this is what we believe every day of our lives is going to happen, whether or not we're aware of it. So, Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, In other words, it is not just a physical person whom we meet every day and with whom we may or may not talk. We are all composed of something else, this spiritual element unseen by our eyes. Okay, so again, Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. No, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. End of a quotation. Well, that's a challenge and a little bit discouraging for some of us. And then according to Revelations 12, verses 7 to 11, Satan accuses God's people day and night before the throne of God. Satan is known by various names in Scripture, the devil, which means accuser, Satan, which means adversary. He's also called tempter, liar, liar, 
murderer, serpent, roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, angel of light, ruler of this world, god of this age. Well, after it's just it's pretty disturbing titles after you read all these and put them together. So does that mean we might as well just go home, get in bed, and pull up the sheets? Well, it is bad news, scary news, but no. As Dostoevsky said, we can't hear the last word until we hear the next to the last word. And the penultimate word, that is the next to the last word we've just read about, and things are looking bad for everyone on this planet, but Paul already gave us God's ultimate word of hope a few chapters back before in Ephesians 1, in the longest sentence I've ever read in Scripture, which is Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 21. And it finally ends with a period mark. You know, as I've mentioned before, as opposed to the writings of John, who's known as the Apostle of Love, Paul can get a little bit excited as he writes about the glory of God. And because he doesn't want his readers to miss the point, Paul doesn't always seem to take a breath in his writing. So here's what he writes as the counter to what we have just read from him in Ephesians 6. So listen to these power words when Paul writes in Ephesians 1:16 this, quote, I never stop giving thanks that you may know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and, okay, are you ready for the news that defeats the rule of Satan in chapter 6? Here's what he says. God seated him, meaning Jesus, at his right hand, which in Scripture is the position of power, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. End of quotation. Now, that is a lot of encouraging scriptural truth. And that's why the ruler of this present darkness on earth is a defeated foe. But that is also why Satan will imprison as many POWs, that is people, even though he cannot win the war. But remember, there are a lot of people who don't know the good news that God has has already won. So, who will give him the good news? news. Thank you for reminding us of that good news. I love that verse. My guest is Dr. Greg Heddington, and if you just joined us, we are in 1 John chapter 4. Roman numeral 2, reading scripture. I've just given a long prelude to understanding and knowing our need to base our beliefs on the authority of God, which we see in scripture, and how we learn to love him who loves us so much and to love others. I am convinced that a primary element in our growth in Christ is a daily diet of Scripture. So here's a question. What is the value of Scripture in our daily lives? Why is Scripture unique from the vast array even of Christian and devotional books? The Apostle Paul answers that question when he writes this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. We all know John 3.16, but 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God, now he's referring to all Christ followers, male or female, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, 
for every good work. End of quotation. Now, this passage indicates the uniqueness of Scripture, which is God-breathed, that is God-inspired. And unlike all other books, Scriptures are canonized. Again, a canon is a compilation of beliefs put into a book. The Scriptures have been canonized in what we now know as the Bible, which has remarkably survived repeated attempts to obliterate it throughout the centuries, but has been providentially protected, especially, a little history, when the Vikings roared through most of Europe and destroyed much of the culture that had been preserved for over 3,000 years. It was the Celtic monks who saved many texts of Scripture in the 8th and 9th centuries by hiding them in their monasteries until the Vikings were finally beaten back in the 11th century. So, question, why would anyone want to destroy Scripture? Answer, because the Word of God says there is no other God apart from our Heavenly Father and certainly not the mythological Norse gods of the Vikings. By the way, I do not typically use the word Bible. Why is that? Well, because the word Bible is not used even once in Scripture. The word Bible means a book filled with sacred writings, although, of course, sacred writings is a matter of opinion because at bookstores I've also seen the Bible of Goff, the Bible of gardening, and so on. But our scripture was compiled into one book in the 4th century, and although the word Bible is never mentioned, the word scripture is referred to 54 times in scripture. The point is, people have attempted to obliterate Scripture because God actually spoke the words, and then it was written down by humans whom he inspired. Now, you know, it it puzzles me why some people refuse to believe that God wrote Scripture. If we believe the universe, our world, the animal and plant kingdoms, are all the expression of a creator, why would it be so difficult to believe that the creator could fashion a book that would express his thoughts and design for our lives. So we're talking about the uniqueness of Scripture, and in Paul's comments in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul enumerates four specific areas in life that Scripture proves to be invaluable and therefore needs to be read often. Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest. Greg, I am, again, uh, loving your insight and loving this uh, study, so uh, thank you. Um, Amen. Yeah, well, Roman numeral three, the good. effects of Scripture. First, Scripture teaches us. It informs us how to navigate our lives, which includes our thoughts, attitudes, habits, and every aspect of daily living, plus our down moments as well. Furthermore, there's no greater fear than the fear that God might ultimately condemn us for eternity after we die. So Scripture teaches us that if we trust if we commit to, if we put our weight down on, and all three of those are a description of the word in in, he, in the Greek for believe, which is pisteu, to trust, to commit to, to put our weight down on Jesus in this life, then we receive his love and we do not fear judgment. Second, Scripture rebukes us, and to rebuke means to express sharp disapproval of one's actions. So here's a question. When was the last time Scripture rebuked you or me for the things we're doing? Hopefully, it was recently, because if not, then we're either approaching perfection, which is unlikely, or 
it's been too long since we've been seriously studying Scripture. Mm, that's such a good it point. Is a good, it's a good thing, yeah. although painful, when we are rebuked by God's Word because it leads us to repentance, which is an integral part of our growth in Christ. Third, <laughs> Scripture corrects us. Scripture not only tells me when I've gone astray, it also calls me home. And these corrections are not opinions. They're commands to obey, and we show our love for Jesus when we obey his commands to truly, again, love him and love others, as the apostle of love, John, tells us. Fourth and last, Scripture trains us in righteousness. Now, the word righteous has always intrigued me, and it became more popularized in America in the 60s when that word slowly moved east across America from the surfing community of California. Surfers would talk about catching righteous waves. <laughs> so for believers, Scripture tells us, though, that righteousness is the very character of God. Just as someone who wants to get fit or stay physically in shape in their spiritual training, it includes a daily investment of studying God's Word. I mean, if not, it would be like exercising like crazy one time and saying, okay, I'm good for the week now. I guess I don't need that. Bill, those are a few thoughts just to start us off. I love that. I've already made a note of several things I, I want to uh, share with others. Uh, I love this comment you made about when is the last time Scripture convicted you on something? Mm. And Rosie and I looked at each other and thought, oh, I don't know, in the last 20 minutes maybe? <laughs> <laughs> So this is an outstanding study. Dr. Greg Headington is my guest. We are going to take a short break, but I promise we're going to be back with more of Greg and 1 John chapter 4. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show. So glad to be with my friend, Dr. Greg Heddington. I always enjoy his teaching. I always really enjoy his style of teaching, too. If you are a student of God's Word, you love how organized he is with his thoughts, and I appreciate that he uh, presents us uh, God's Word in a way that if you have a notebook and a, and a pen, you're going to learn more. Because I always say, if you want to go from reading God's Word to studying it, have a pencil in your hand. All right, Greg, let's uh, resume where we were. First uh, John chapter 4. Absolutely. Bill, we've been talking about how we love God, and we love God through studying Scripture, going deeply, not just reading it, but actually studying it, even though we've got the spiritual warfare that is constant to try to discourage us from reading Scripture. Here's a quotation from John Quincy Adams. He was America's sixth president and son of the president, John Adams. And in spite of the fact that in every photo of him, he looks like so unhappy, like he's just taking a bite out of a lemon, he is one of my favorite political leaders for two reasons. First, after he served as president, he became the only ex-president to serve in the House of Representatives. And as a member, he spoke out against slavery and the way that Native Americans had been treated. Secondly, he was a man of great principle, even though he did his best to follow Scripture, but we would not call him an Orthodox 
Christ follower, but he did say this, quote, I speak as a man to men of the world, and I say to you, search the scriptures. The Bible is the book of all others to be read at all ages and in all conditions of human life, not to be read once or twice or thrice through and then laid aside, but to read in small portions of one or two chapters a day and never to be omitted by some overwhelming necessity. End of quotation. Well, those are profound words, and I would add to that the importance of Scripture memory. Many have said, the longest journey in the world is the 18 inches from my head to my heart. Well, Scripture memory starts the process of having God's truth make that all-important journey to our heart. Psalm 119.11 speaks of the value of God's Word. It says, Lord, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then later in the same chapter, verse 105, written in a world where there were no electric lights, the psalmist says this, Lord, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In my journey in life, I can attest to the value of memorizing Scripture. And frankly, I think everybody ought to memorize Psalm 23, if you don't know it, and Psalm 100, just because it's a wonderful praise to God. So Scripture can keep our minds throughout the day on the Lord and be able to recall through memory when we need to remember the truth of God. Roman numeral four, the spiritual battle. The Apostle John knows the church of his day is in a life and death struggle for existence with the Gnostics, whom he calls antichrists, that's plural, who are infiltrating the church and telling people that God only appeared to come to earth in the flesh, because all material creation and physical bodies are inherently evil. That's according to Gnosticism, which is right from the pit. So Jesus, he, they say, not only appeared as a spirit, which means, only appeared as a spirit, which means that, number one, Jesus did not really die for the forgiveness of sins. Number two, Jesus was not fully divine and fully human. So number three, we're hopelessly dead and lost in our sins. Now, the Gnostics then claim that the believers must learn, quote, secret knowledge. Friends, there is nothing secret or exclusive about knowing the love of Jesus is for all people. And this is what propels our author, John, to write that memorable verse number four, which says, He who is in you, referring to the Holy Spirit for all believers, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world referring to Satan and his minions and their demonic influence on the Gnostics who are trying to divide the church. So after I've taught on this verse in the past, I've had people say, okay, so hearing all about Satan, who's, who's greater, Jesus or Satan? Here's the response I say. In your life, the one who's greater is the one you feed. God has given us free choice to grow closer to him, or to feed our doubts with more doubts by not reading the Scripture and not being in community with those who follow the Lord. Like I said, every day, all day, we are getting negative reviews from Satan, how we are messing up, how there's no way we're to be forgiven. Although, you know, we have to always come back with Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ. That should be just a a verse we just know immediately. So as we read these verses about Satan, 
Yes, it can be discouraging. John is warning us once again, just as he did back in 2.15, that we are not to love, not to be preoccupied with or devoted to the corrupt world system in which we live every single day because it is opposed to God. And one day it will pass. Yet, as our friend Augustine from the 5th century said, quote, Hold fast to Christ that you may partake in eternity. Roman numeral 5. Our invisible allies. I've, I've, I've given Satan a lot of, uh, of airtime here so far. So for one lesson, this lesson, I also want to talk about our spiritual allies. One of my favorite stories from the Old Testament occurred around 400 B.C. If you want to check it out, it's found in 2 Kings chapter 6. It was a time of continual strife and sometimes open warfare between Israel, which at that time was the northern kingdom where the Hebrews lived, and Syria, which was their northern enemy. The Syrian king had discovered that all of his strategies and plans for battle against Israel are somehow being communicated to his enemy, which is Israel. Now, how is that possible? Well, it's because Elisha, the great prophet of God in Israel, is being given through the Lord knowledge of their plans. So the king of Syria somehow learns of this and sends his great army out to track down Elisha, who's just 10 miles away, and to take Elisha captive. Early the next morning, Elisha's servant wakes up, walks out of his tent, and sees a vast army of chariots and horses from Syria have encircled the town. He runs back to Elisha's tent in a panic, wakes him up, tells him of this great army surrounding the town, and says, what shall we do? Elisha's reply is immortal. He says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prays, O Lord, please open my servant's eyes that he may see. So, sure enough, the Lord opens his servant's eyes so that he's able to see that the mountain surrounding the town is full of angelic horses and chariots of fire who had been there all along and had given Elisha confidence that the Lord was with him. But they had been invisible to Elisha's servant until that moment when the Lord enabled to see him. Well, in brief, the, the battle ends quickly, and it's a great victory for Israel. What a story. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest. Greg, I'm loving this teaching. Thanks, Bill. Well, discovering the forces who are with us as Christ followers are greater than the demonic side, despite of initial appearances. That truth is made clear again and again in Scripture. And what John says in verse 14 is just one more instance. Of course, it always takes faith to see and know this reality. Like Peter trying to walk on the water, it's all too easy to begin to doubt and then we're in trouble. When John tells us the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world, he's already warned us against loving the world system and trying to make it through life on our own against demonic forces. And then Hebrews 12.1 gives us another image of the unseen reality, the image as if we, as God's people, are on the dirt floor of a coliseum, 
fighting against the evils of this present darkness, while all around us, filling up the seats of the great arena, an enormous crowd of witnesses are watching and cheering us on. And perhaps the crowd is composed of former heroes and heroines of the faith. We're not certain who they are since we do not know exactly what's happening behind the curtain in the invisible heavenly realm. But we do know that the angels of God who function as God's messengers are all around us, even now as Jesus intercedes for us, according to Romans 8, verse 34. Each of us today has the written, living word of God to read, to study, to meditate on and to memorize so that it's in our hearts like it's in the closed country where they cannot attend worship. Uh, scripture is banned. Believers get there and they recite one chapter and then another person recites another chapter until they've heard the spoken word of God. Everyone memorizes a large portion of Scripture for the rest of the church. So, friends, do we do that? Do we memorize Scripture? When someone asks us for advice about something, we can give them our opinion with which they might disagree. But when we give them a passage from Scripture, if they disagree, they're not disagreeing with you. They're disagreeing with God. So, Bill, that's the Word of God. Oh, I, I love that, Greg. And also, uh, I marvel to think that we would be the envy of every first century Christian. We have mm. the entire revealed Word of God in our hands. Amen. Yeah, fantastic. Greg, thank you so much for uh, the teaching and the time together. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. We'll take a little break and we'll be right back. My guest has been Dr. Greg Heddington. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.